from the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, one of the most provocative parables of Jesus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Oh, my child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he's comforted here and you are in agony. Beside all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, oh, Father Abraham, if, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. During the singing of the second stanza, we invite all of children who'd like to go to Children's Church to join Miss Cat over here at the pulpit side door. Let us join in singing together. to take a moment of personal privilege just to express my appreciation for being a part of this wonderful Dill lecture series that honors two wonderful people, Stephen and Ruth Dill. You know them well, what they have meant to the life of this church. And the lecture series doesn't simply uh, honor their contributions to this uh, congregation, but it also uh, reflects the kind of Christian faith that they stand for. Uh, the kind of faith that loves God with the mind as well as with the heart, and the kind of Christian faith that moves beyond the walls of the church and out into the community and the, and the city. You've had some uh, fantastic speakers in this series. I'm daunted by that, uh, but honored uh, to be a part of them. Uh, 
We just heard Jesus' parable of, the Lazar of Lazarus and the rich man. Now, let me begin by admitting, I, I don't think it's going to be easy to say exactly what Jesus wants us to get out of this parable, or any of the parables, really. The word parable is a notoriously difficult word to define. It means a lot of things. But one of the best definitions of parable is riddle. Parables are riddles. There's some enigma to be resolved, some mystery to be plumbed. And the thing about Jesus' parables, uh, right when you think you've got it, well, a trap door opens, and you fall down to an even deeper level of mystery. By the way, I think insufficient attention is paid to the fact that we serve a Lord whose favorite method of teaching was riddles. Uh, the writer of the Gospel of Mark exaggerates a little, but not too much, when he says, Jesus never said anything except in riddles. I think that perplexed his disciples, frankly. We're told that one day, Jesus had been preaching and teaching beside the Sea of Galilee, one parable after another, one riddle after another, and when he was finished, his disciples pulled him aside and said to him, why did you do that? Why do you talk to them in riddles? As if to say, why aren't you like the other teachers? If you've got something to say, just say it directly. But no, he never said anything except in riddles. The humorist Calvin Trillin once said that he failed high school math because his teacher never understood that he meant his answers ironically. <laughs> Well, so did Jesus, evidently, because he never said anything except in riddles. The great New Testament scholar C.H. Dodd once came up with a marvelous definition of a New Testament parable. He said, a parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from everyday life, the meaning of which is sufficiently in doubt to tease the imagination into thought. Did you get that? The, the meaning of which is sufficiently in doubt to tease the imagination into thought. But even in the strange world of parables, the one that we read this morning is particularly odd. I mean, a lot of people will say that a parable is really a, an earthly story, a very earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Well, not this one. Most of the action in this parable takes place not in this world, but in the next world. So instead of an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, this is sort of a heavenly story with a, or actually more like a hellish story with an earthly meaning. A lot of the dialogue comes from the bowels of Hades. What happens in this parable is that there's a rich man. We don't know his name, but we know how he lives. He wears designer clothing and he feasts sumptuously every day right at his door, right on his front porch, right at his gate, there is a poor beggar by the name of Lazarus. So desperately hungry, he would love to have pawed through the garbage bags that go out the back door of the mansion every day, but no. There's no indication that the rich man ever sees him, notices him, pays him any mind, 
They live only a few feet apart. But they're in different worlds. But then, as is so often the case in Jesus' parables, there is a sudden reversal of fortune. The poor man Lazarus dies, and the angels of God come and take him into the bosom of Abraham. That's an old Jewish phrase meaning right into the family of God, right next to the heart of God. The rich man also dies, but he heads the other way and ends up in the old Jewish land of the dead, Sheol, Hades. And there in torment, he looks up, and what does he see? That poor beggar Lazarus in the bosom of Father Abraham. So he cries out, Father Abraham, please have mercy on me. Send Lazarus with water to cool my tongue. I'm in agony here. But Father Abraham says, oh, my child, no. You've had your good things in life, and what is more, a great chasm has been fixed between us. You can't come to us now. And those of us who would love to come to you, we cannot. It's too late. It's too late. It's too late. Now, what do you think Jesus wants us to get out of that riddle? Well, a a good many New Testament scholars point out that this parable, which appears only in Luke, fits beautifully into a major theological theme, a motif in Luke. Uh, Namely, that in the age-old struggle between the rich and the poor, between the haves and the have-nots, God is not neutral. God stands on the side of the poor. They have no one else to stand with them, and God stands with them. And it's true, if we read the Gospel of Luke with an open mind and an open heart, there is more material in Luke on what we might call economic justice than almost anywhere else in Scripture. In fact, so strong is the theme that when you read through Luke, you get the feeling that every time he uses the word rich, he snorts. Rich. Well, you remember at the beginning of the gospel when the angel Gabriel came to the peasant girl, Mary, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, good news, and told her that she was to become the mother of the Christ child. She breaks into song. We call it the Magnificat. The choir will probably sing it at Christmas time. But it's not a gentle mother's lullaby. It's more like a political protest song. What she sings is, my soul magnifies the Lord. Why? Because God has brought down the high and mighty and lifted up the weak and lowly. The hungry God has filled with good things. And the rich, God has sent empty away. Right before Jesus tells our riddle, he has an argument with the local clergy. He says to them, "Uh, you know what's wrong with you ministers? I'll tell you what's wrong with you ministers. You think you can serve two gods, God and money, God and mammon, God and prosperity. Well, you can't. They are rival gods, and they both want your soul. So what's it going to be, God or money? 
Maybe, just maybe, our parable is the tragic tale of a man who made the wrong decision. And I have to say, if that's what Jesus wants us to get out of this, there's something in that that I find deeply satisfying. I don't know whether you've seen the documentary The Social Network or not, but it's how uh, Facebook and Google and Twitter and the other social media manipulate algorithms to addict us, to reveal ourselves and our data so that it can be commodified and used against us, especially our young people. And it just makes my blood boil. Or, or, or maybe you read the same article in the newspaper I did several years ago about the professional basketball player in Philadelphia who owes the city of Philadelphia thousands of dollars in unpaid parking fines because he parks his luxury cars wherever he wants to. One of the tickets was for parking his Rolls Royce at Philadelphia Airport for two weeks in a handicap slot. Now, if what Jesus is telling us is that one day, greedy, self-sufficient, self-absorbed people like that will stand before the bar of God's judgment and hear the voice of God say, all right, Buster, you've had all the good things in life you are ever going to have. There's something in me that says, yeah. <laughs> there are only two things that keep me from stopping there. The first is the chill of recognition. Look, I, I don't think of myself as a rich person. I don't. I, I've been all of my career a preacher and a teacher, and believe me, I have been paid accordingly. I, I don't think of myself as a rich person. But if you pull the camera back, and look at me in relationship to the population of the earth, I'm right up there near the top of the pyramid. Or to put it in the terms of our parable, I have a whole closet of nice clothes, and I've never gone wanting for a meal in my life. Whatever this has to say to the rich, it has to say to me. The second thing that keeps me from stopping there is that Jesus doesn't stop there. Luke doesn't stop there. As soon as Jesus has told this parable, he gets back out on the road to the cross. And it takes him soon through the city of Jericho. And in Jericho, he encounters an honest-to-goodness rich man. His name is Zacchaeus. And he's muscle for the Roman IRS. Or as Luke puts it, he was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. But he wanted to see Jesus. So he climbed up into a sycamore tree where he knew Jesus would pass by. And sure enough, when Jesus did pass by, he looked up into the sycamore tree at Zacchaeus, and he did not say, All right, Buster, you've had all the good things in life you're ever going to have. What he said to him was, come on down, Zacchaeus, I'm staying at your house today. And before that day was over, Zacchaeus was jumping for joy and justice, and Jesus was saying, 
Today, salvation has come even to this man. He, too, is in the bosom of Abraham. Do you hear that sound? That was the sound of the trapdoor opening. We fall down into a deeper level of mystery. Is our riddle about wealth and poverty? Yes, it is. But it's also resting on something even deeper. I think the key to it is in what Father Abraham said to the rich man. Do you remember? What he said to him was, Oh, my child. That's not the voice of an angry judge. That's the voice of a heartbroken parent. Oh, my child, I want to come to you, but I can't. I think what this is about is what might be called the penultimate theology of the gospel, the next to last theology of the gospel. The, the ultimate theology of the gospel is that it is never too late. The mercy of God is from everlasting to everlasting. The prodigal daughter, the prodigal son can always come home. There's a candle in the window and a table laden with grace waiting. It's never too late. But that would be cheap grace if it were not for the next to last theology of the gospel. And that is there are moments in life that really count. When God opens up a window of blessing and invites us to be a part of what God is doing in the world, Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. And then the window closes. There's a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, writer who has written a wonderful book called Old Friends. It's about life in a New England nursing home. The author actually spent a year in a Boston nursing home living there and doing research for the novel. And in, the, in that story, he says, there are a lot of people in this nursing home who are plagued by the loss of memory, but there's one man here who is plagued by the inability to lose memory. His name is Art. He's just lost his wife of 60 years, and he's tormented by memories of failure in their marriage. He remembers when they were newlyweds and she accidentally dropped the frying pan one morning and he cursed her. If I could have her back, she could drop a hundred frying pans, I wouldn't say a thing. He remembers an argument that went on all 60 years of their marriage. She wanted him to tell her more that he loved her. No, I don't like to talk about it. That ain't my way. I like to show it. I don't like to talk. I know, sweetheart, but sometimes I need to hear it. I ain't my way. The last week of her life, she went into a coma, and he sat beside her bed saying over and over, I love you. I love you. I love you. She never responded. She never forgave me. The moment of her death, he was in the room watching baseball on television. Ha, <laughs> the Red Sox are losing it. 
I would have liked it, he said, if she had died in my arms. Some of us understand this very personally. I cannot believe, I cannot believe that when I was a young father, I actually got on that airplane and flew somewhere to give a speech to people who no longer remember me or what I said, instead of going to the father-daughter campfire girl banquet that my little girl Melanie was begging me to go to with her. Can't believe I did that. Now that I'm a lot older and a little wiser, I know I made the wrong choice. I'm now ready to go to the father-daughter campfire girl banquet. (laughs) To which Melanie would say, oh, Daddy, it's too late. I'm all grown up now. I'm not that little girl anymore who so desperately needed her father that night. You missed it. I think Jesus, when he was a boy, heard a lot of sermons like this because it was a favorite theme of the old rabbis in the synagogue. They loved to preach about how God would open up a window of blessing and righteousness in life and invite God's people into it. And some came and some did not, and then the window would close and it would be too late. They even had their favorite sermon illustrations. They were called Eliezer of Damascus stories. Who's that? Eliezer of Damascus. He's an obscure biblical character. He's mentioned only once by name in the book of Genesis. He was Abraham's cousin and Abraham's right-hand man. And the rabbis made up stories about him. And that was that when God wanted to bless the earth, God would say to Abraham, send your man Eliezer of Damascus to earth to give earth a blessing. And Eliezer of Damascus would be sent, but he would always come incognito. He'd be the goat herd or the tailor or the guy next to you on the Delta flight. You have to keep your eyes open if you're going to see Eliezer of Damascus. By the way, if you translate the Hebrew name Eliezer into Greek, it's Lazarus. The blessing of God in the form of a beggar on the front porch. God was inviting the rich man into the blessing and righteousness of God. The rich man needed Lazarus a whole lot more than Lazarus needed the rich man. But he missed it. Why did he miss it? Same reason we do. He was too rich, too self-sufficient too curved in on himself, too numb to the possibility that God might be breaking through the crust of his life to give him life. A friend of mine was watching television with her teenage son the other night. She was folding laundry. They were watching something stupid on TV. In the middle of it, her son said something a little smart. She didn't like it and scolded him gently. He didn't like being scolded, so he said something even sharper to her she really didn't like that and scolded him very firmly and he didn't like that at all and brought his fist down on the coffee table and then ran upstairs and slammed the door of his room 
And she thought to herself, well, you can just stew in your juices. But then something told her that there was nothing more important in all the world at that moment than making peace with her son. So she put down her laundry and she put down her pride and she went up and made peace. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. <laughs>